The following is a conversation with Donald Knuth, one of the greatest and most impactful computer scientists and mathematicians ever. He's the recipient of the 1974 Turing Award, considered the Nobel Prize of Computing. He's the author of the multi-volume work, the magnum opus, The Art of Computer Programming. He made several key contributions to the rigorous analysis of computational complexity of algorithms, including the popularization of asymptotic notation that we all affectionately know as the Big O notation. He also created the Tech Typesetting System, which most computer scientists, physicists, mathematicians, and scientists and engineers in general use to write technical papers and make them look beautiful. I can imagine no better guest to end 2019 with than Don, one of the kindest, most brilliant people in our field. This podcast was recorded many months ago. It's one I avoided because, perhaps counterintuitively, the conversation meant so much to me. If you can believe it, I knew even less about recording back then, so the camera angle is a bit off. I hope that's okay with you. The office space was a bit cramped for filming, but it was a magical space where Don does most of his work. It meant a lot to me that he would welcome me into his home. It was quite a journey to get there. As many people know, he doesn't check email, so I had to get creative. The effort was worth it. I've been doing this podcast on the side for just over a year. Sometimes I had to sacrifice a bit of sleep, but always happy to do it and to be part of an amazing community of curious minds. Thank you for your kind words of support and for the interesting discussions, and I look forward to many more of those in 2020. This is the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. If you enjoy it, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or simply connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman, spelled F-R-I-D-M-A-N. I recently started doing ads at the end of the introduction. I'll do one or two minutes after introducing the episode and never any ads in the middle that break the flow of the conversation. I hope that works for you and doesn't hurt the listening experience. I provide timestamps for the start of the conversation that you can skip to, but it helps if you listen to the ad and support this podcast by trying out the product or service being advertised. This show is presented by Cash App, the number one finance app in the App Store. I personally use Cash App to send money to friends, but you can also use it to buy, sell, and deposit Bitcoin in just seconds. Cash App also has a new investing feature. You can buy fractions of a stock, say $1 worth, no matter what the stock price is. Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square, and a member SIPC. I'm excited to be working with Cash App to support one of my favorite organizations called FIRST best known for their FIRST robotics and LEGO competitions. They educate and inspire hundreds of thousands of students in over 110 countries and have a perfect rating on Charity Navigator, which means that donated money is used to maximum effectiveness. When you get Cash App from the App Store or Google Play and use code LEXPODCAST, you'll get $10, and Cash App will also donate $10 to FIRST, which again is an organization that I've personally seen inspire girls and boys to dream of engineering a better world. And now, here's my conversation with Donald Knuth.
1957 at Case Tech, you were once allowed to spend several evenings with a IBM 650 computer, as you've talked about in the past, and you fell in love with computing then. Yeah. Can you take me back to that moment with the IBM 650? What, what was it that grabbed you about that computer? So the IBM 650 was this this machine that, uh, well, it didn't fill a room, but it it was it was big and noisy. But when I first saw it, it was through a window, and there were just a lot of lights flashing on it. And uh, I was a freshman. I had a job with the statistics group, and I was supposed to punch cards and uh, for data and then sort them on another machine. But they got this new computer came in and I, and um, it had uh, interesting you know lights. Okay, so well, <laughs> but I had a kind of key to the building, so I can you know I, I could get in and look at it and got a manual for it and and. Uh, my first experience was based on the fact that I could punch cards, basically, which is a big thing for the but the, but the IBM 650 was, uh, you know, big in size, but but uh, <laughs> incredibly small in power in resources uh, in, in memory. It yeah. it had it had two thousand words of memory, and a word of memory was ten decimal digits plus a sign, and it it would do uh, to add two numbers together. You could probably expect that would take. I'll say three milliseconds. So still th pretty fast. It's the yeah. memory is the constraint. The memory is the problem. That was why it was. It took th three milliseconds because it took five milliseconds for the drum to go around, and <laughs> you had to wait. I don't know five cycle times. If if you have an instruction uh, in one position on the drum, then it would be ready to read the data for the instruction, and in, you know go th three notches. The drum is fifty cycles around. And you go three cycles, and you can get the data, and then you can go another three cycles and get and get to your next instruction, if the instruction is there. Otherwise, otherwise you spin until you get to the to the right place. And and we had no uh, random access memory whatsoever until my senior year. In senior year, we got fifty words of random access memory, Ooh. which were which were priceless. And we would we, and we would move stuff up to the up, up to the uh, random access memory. And, in, in sixty-word chunks, and then we would start again. So, subroutine wanted to go up there. And could you have predicted the future sixty years later of computing no, from no. then? You know, in fact, the hardest question I was ever asked was, uh, "What could I have predicted?" In other mm. words, the interviewer asked me. She, she said, "You know, uh, what about computing has surprised you?" You know, and immediately I ran, I rattled off. A, Couple dozen things, and then she said, "Okay, so what didn't surprise?" And I, I was, I tried for five minutes to think of something that I that I would have predicted, and I and I and I couldn't. Uh, but I, let me say that this machine, I didn't know. Well, it, there wasn't there wasn't much else in the world at that time. The six hundred and fifty was the first machine that was that there were more than a thousand of ever. Before that, there were, you know, there was uh, each machine. There were, might be a half a dozen examples, maybe. The maybe, first mass maybe market, mass produced. It was the first one, that, yeah, done in quantity. And uh, and IBM uh, didn't sell them; they they rented them, but but they they rented them to universities at at great 
uh, you know, had, had a great deal. And, mm -hmm. and so that's why uh, uh, a lot of students learned about computers at that time. So you refer to people, including yourself, who uh, gravitate toward a kind of computational thinking as geeks. I've heard, at least I've heard you use that terminology. It, 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 it's true that I think there's something that happened to me as I was growing up that made my brain uh, uh, structured in a certain way that, that resonates with, with computers. So there's this space of people, 2% of the population, you empirically estimate. That, that's, a fair, that's been proven fairly, fairly constant <laughs> over most of my career. However, uh, it might be different now because kids have different experiences when they're young. So obviously. what <clears throat> does the world look like to a geek? What is, what is this aspect of thinking that is uh, unique to uh, that, that makes they, yeah that makes a geek. This is hugely important question. In in the fifties, IBM noticed that that uh, there were geeks and non geeks, and so they tried to hire geeks, and they and they put out ads for papers saying, you know, if you play chess, come to Madison Avenue and for an interview or something like right. this. You know, they were they were trying for some things. So what it what what is it that I find easy, and other people tend to find harder? And and I think there's two main things. One is this, with is uh, ability to to jump jump levels of of uh, abstraction. Uh, so you see something in the large, uh, and you see something in the small, and and uh, and you pass between those uh, uh, unconsciously. So you, you you know that in order to solve a, some big problem, what you need to do is add one to a uh, in, to a certain register, and, and that gets you to another step. And mm -hmm. and, and, be, and below the yeah, I, mean, I don't go down to the electron level, but. I knew what those milliseconds were, what the drum was like on the 650. I knew how I was going to factor a number or or find a root of an equation or something be because of what was doing. And and as I'm debugging, I'm going through, you know, did I make a key punch error? Did I did I write the wrong instruction? Do I have the wrong wrong thing in a register? And each level. It, each level it uh, is different, and uh, so this idea of being able to see something at, at all at lots of levels uh, and fluently go between them seems to me to be more pronounced, much more pronounced in the, in the people that resonate with computers. Like like I, so in my books, I also don't stick just to the high level, but but yeah. I but I I, I mix. Uh, Low-level stuff with high-level, and this uh, uh, means that some people think, uh, you know, that uh, that uh, I should write better books, uh, and it's probably true. But but other people say, well, but that's if if you think like like that, then that's the way to train yourself. Like keep mixing the levels and and learn more and more how to jump between. So that that's the one thing. The other the, the other thing is that it's more of a talent. It, it to be able to deal with um, uh, non-uniformity, where, where where there's case one, case two, case three, uh, instead of instead of having one or two rules that govern everything. Uh, so so it so it, it it doesn't bother me if I need uh, 
uh, like an algorithm have, has 10 steps to it. You know, each step mm -hmm. does, does something else that doesn't bother me. But a lot of a lot of pure mathematics is based on one or two rules, which which are universal, and and uh, mm -hmm. and so this means that people like me sometimes work with uh, systems that are more complicated than necessary because it doesn't bother us mm -hmm. that we don't that we didn't figure out the simpler rule. And you mentioned <clears throat> that while Jacobi, Boole, Abel, and all the mathematicians in the nineteenth century may have had symptoms of geek. The first hundred percent legit geek was Turing, Alan Turing. I I think he had yeah a lot more of the of of this uh, quality than anybody that, uh, just from reading the, the the kind of stuff he did and. So how does uh, Turing? What influence has Turing had on you? What, well, in your okay, way of thinking. So I didn't know that aspect of him until after I graduated some years. I, it, as undergraduate, we had a, a, a class that talked about computability theory and Turing machines, and and it was all, it, it sounded like a, a very specific kind of purely theoretical mm -hmm. uh, approach to, to stuff. So when, how old was he when I, when I learned that he, that he had, uh, he, you know, a design machine, <laughs> and that he wrote the, you know, he wrote a wonderful manual for for Manchester machines, and uh, and he invented all you know subroutines, and 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 he was a real hacker that mm -hmm. that he got had his hands dirty. I, I I thought for many years that he had only done purely formal work. As I started reading his own publications, I could you know I could feel this kinship. Um, mm -hmm. And and of course he had a lot of peculiarities. Uh, like he wrote numbers backwards because, I mean, left to right instead of right to left because that's the that's it was easier for computers to process them that way. What do you mean left to right? He uh, would write pi <laughs> as you know nine five oh, wow. one four point three. I mean, yeah. okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> right, uh, got it. For one point three, on the blackboard. I mean, when he 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 he, he, he had trained himself to uh, uh, to do that because uh, the computers he was working with uh, uh, worked that way inside. Trained himself to think like a computer. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's mm -hmm. that's geek thinking. Yeah, you've practiced some of the most elegant formalism in computer science. And yet, you're the creator of a concept like literate programming, which seems to move closer to natural language type of description of programming. Yeah, absolutely. So the, how do you see those two as conflicting, as yeah, the formalism well, of theory and the idea of literate programming? So there, there we are in a non-uniform system where I don't, where I don't think one, one size fits all, and I don't, uh, and I don't think all truth lies in one. In one kind of expertise, and so somehow, in a way, you'd say my my life is a convex combination of English and mathematics. And you're okay with that? And not only that, I think thriving. I wish you know. I want my kids to be that way. I want <laughs> etc. You know, yeah. not use left brain, right brain at the same time. Uh, you got a lot more done. That's that was part of the <laughs> part of the bargain. And I've heard that. You didn't really read for pleasure until into your 30s. 
as, yeah, you know, that, literature. That's true. You know more about me than I do, but I, I'll, I'll try to be consistent with what you read. Yeah, no, just believe me. I uh, <laughs> just go with whatever story I tell you. Yeah. It'll be easier that way. The conversation will be right. Easier. Yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> so I've, I've heard mention of Philip Roth's American Pastoral, which I, I love as a book. I don't know if it was it was mentioned as something I think that was meaningful to you as well. Uh, in either case, what literary books had a lasting impact on you? What literature? Yeah, okay, what good, good poetry? question. So, so I I, I met Roth. Uh, oh, really? Uh, well, we both got doctors from Harvard on the same day, so so, okay. so we were, yeah, we had lunch together and stuff like that. And but he knew that. Uh, uh, you know, computer books would never sell. Well, well. Um, <laughs> all right. So you say you you uh, you uh, you were a teenager when you left Russia. So mm -hmm. uh, I have to say that Tolstoy was one of the big influences on me. Uh, I uh, especially like Anna Karenina, mm -hmm. uh, not because of the, of particular of the plot of the story, where, but because. Uh, uh, the, the, there's this character who, you know, the, the philosophical discussions that mm -hmm. uh, it, it's all, it's a, it, a whole uh, way of life is worked out there among the characters. And so, and, and so that I thought was, was especially beautiful. On the other hand, Dostoevsky, I, I didn't like at all <laughs> because I've, I felt that he, his genius was mostly because he kept forgetting what he what he had started out to do, and he was just sloppy. I I, I didn't think that 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 he polished his stuff at all, uh, and and I, I tend to admire mm -hmm. somebody who who dots the i's and crosses the t's. So the uh, the music of the prose is what you admire more than. The, I certainly do admire the music of the language, which I couldn't appreciate in the Russian original, but but I can in Victor Hugo. You know, because mm -hmm. it's close. French is much is closer. But but Tolstoy, I like the same reason I like Herman Wouk as a as a novelist. I I think uh, uh, he, like his book Marjorie Morningstar has a similar character in who, who who developed his own personal philosophy and expo and and it go, goes in in the, was consistent uh, yeah right yeah. It, and it's worth uh, worth pondering uh so uh so you yeah. don't like nietzsche and uh like what you don't like friedrich nietzsche or nietzsche yeah no no yeah this has ne I, I i keep seeing quotations from nietzsche and and they never tempt me to read any further <laughs> Well, he's full of contradictions, so yeah. you will certainly not appreciate yeah. him. But Schiller, you know, I'm trying to get, get across what I appreciate in literature, mm -hmm. uh, and part of it is the it, it is is as you say the music of the language, uh, the way it flows, and take uh, Raymond Chandler versus Dashiell Hammett. Dashiell Hammett's sentences uh, are, are awful, and Raymond Chandler's. Are, are are beautiful they just flow so i i don't uh, i don't read literature because it's uh, uh, supposed to be good for me or, or because somebody said it's great but but it i i i find things that i like i mean uh, you mentioned you were dressed like james bond so mm -hmm. I, I you know i love ian fleming i think he's got a, he, he had a really great gift for if he has a golf game or a game of bridge or something and this comes into a story it'll it, it'll be the most exciting 
golf game or, or, or you know, the absolute best possible hands of bridge that that exists, and and uh, and he he exploits it and, and tells it beautifully. So, so <clears throat> in connecting some things here, looking at literate programming and being able to convey uh, encode algorithms to a computer in a way that mimics how humans speak. Uh, how what do, what do you think about natural language in general and the messiness of our human world, about trying to express yeah. difficult things? So the idea of literate programming is, to, is really to try to uh, understand something better by seeing it from at least two perspectives, the formal and the informal. If we're trying to understand a complicated thing, if we can look at it in different ways, and so uh, this this is in fact the key to technical writing. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, a, a good technical writer, trying not to be obvious about it, but says everything twice, mm -hmm. uh, formally and informally, or, or maybe three times. But you try to give uh, the the, uh, the reader um, a, a way to to put the concept into his own brain or her own brain. Is that better <clears throat> for the writer or the reader or both? Well. The writer just tries to understand the reader. That's the goal of a writer: is to is, is to have a good mental image of the reader, and to to say what the reader expects next, and to to impress the reader with what has impressed the writer. <laughs> why something is interesting. So, so when you have a computer program, we try to. Uh, instead of looking at it as something that we're just trying to give an instruction to the computer, what we really want to be is giving giving insight to the person who's who's uh, uh, going to be maintaining this program, or or to the programmer himself when he's debugging it as to why this stuff is being done. And so all the techniques of exposition that that a teacher uses or a book writer uses make you a better programmer if your if your program is going to be uh, not a, just a one-shot deal. So <clears throat> how difficult is that? Do you see hope for the combination of informal and formal for the yeah. programming task? Yeah, I, I'm i the wrong person to ask, I guess, because <laughs> well, I'm a geek. But but I think for a geek, it's easy. I, well, I, I don't know. Not, some people have difficulty writing and that might be because there's something in their brain structure that make, makes it hard for them to write, or uh, or it might be something just that they haven't had enough practice. I'm not the right one to to to, uh, to judge, but I don't think you can teach any person any particular skill. I, I do think that that writing is is half of my life, and so I I put it together in literary program. Even when I, even when I'm writing a one shot program, I. I write it uh, uh, in a literate way uh, because I, I get it right faster that way. Now, does it get compiled automatically? or? Oh, yeah. So I guess on the technical side, my question was, how difficult is, is it to design a system where much of the programming is done informally? Informally? It's, yeah, informally. I think uh, whatever works to make it understandable 
is good, uh, but then you have to also understand uh, how informal it is. You have to know the limitations. You have to you, right. you uh, so so by putting the formal and informal together, this this is where this is where it gets locked into your into your brain. You can you you can say informally. Uh, well, I'm working on a problem right now, so I'm, I, let's go there. Do, get, let's, can you give me an example of um, yeah. of connecting the informal and the formal? Well, it's a little too complicated an example. There, there, there's a puzzle that, that's self-referential. It's called a Japanese arrow puzzle, and uh, and and you're given a a bunch of boxes. Each one points north, east, south, or west, and at the end, you're supposed to fill in each box with the number of distinct numbers that it points to. Mm-hmm. So if I put a three in a box, that means that, and, and it's pointing to five other boxes, that means that there's going to be three different numbers in those five boxes. Mm-hmm. And uh, and those boxes are pointing, one of them might be pointing to me, one of them might be pointing the other the other way. But anyway, I it yeah, I, I'm supposed to find a, a set of numbers that obeys this, this complicated con- condition that each number counts how many distinct numbers uh, it, it points to. Well, um, and uh, so a guy sent me his solution to this problem where he where he um, uh, uh, presents formal statements that, that that say either this is true or this is true or this is true. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and so I try to render that formal statement informally and I try to say, I contain a three, and and uh, the guys I'm pointing to uh, contain the numbers one, two, and six. Mm-hmm. So by putting it informally and also I convert it into a into a dialogue statement, um, uh, that helps me understand the logical statement that he's written down as a string of numbers in terms of s- some abstract variables that he had. That's really interesting. So maybe an extension of that. There has been a resurgence in computer science and machine learning and uh, neural networks. So using yeah. data to construct algorithms. So it's another way to construct algorithms, really. If, yes, exactly. If you, if you can think of it that way. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so as opposed to natural language to construct algorithms, use data to construct algorithms. So what uh, what's your view of this branch of computer science? Uh, where data is almost more important than the uh, mechanism of the algorithm. It seems to be uh, suited to a certain kind of non-geek, uh, <laughs> and, and which, which is probably why it's it's uh, uh, it's taken off. That it has its own community that that, that really that really resonates with that. But uh, it's hard to you know to trust something like that because nobody even the people who who work with it that they have no idea what is, what has been learned that's, that's a really interesting um, thought that it's uh it makes algorithms more accessible to a different community a different type of brain yep and that's really interesting cuz uh just like literate programming perhaps could make programming more accessible to a certain kind of brain. There are people who think it's just a matter of education uh, and, and anybody can learn to be a, a great programmer, anybody can learn to be a great uh, 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 skier. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, 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 I wish that were true, but, but I know that there's 
a lot of things that I've tried to do, and I and uh, I was well motivated, and I and I kept trying to build myself up, and I never got past a certain level. Uh, I I can't view, for example, I can't view uh, uh, three three dimensional objects in my in my head. I have to I have mm -hmm. to make a model and look at it and study it from all points of view, and then I start to get some idea. Of th but other people are good at four dimensions. I mean, uh, physicists. <laughs> yeah. So let's go to uh, the art of computer programming. In 1962, you set the table of contents for this uh, magnum opus, right? Yep. It was supposed to be a single book with 12 chapters. Now today, what is it, 57 years later, you're in the middle <laughs> of volume four of seven. And in the middle of volume 4B is 4B. more precisely. Can I ask you for an impossible task, which is try to summarize the book so far, maybe by giving a, a little examples. So from the sorting and the search and the combinatorial algorithms, if you were to give a summary, a quick elevator summary. Elevator, that's great. <laughs> yeah, right. But depending how many floors there are in the building. Yeah. Course. The first volume called Fundamental Algorithms talks about something that you can't, the stuff you can't do without. Uh, you, have to, you have to know the basic concepts of, of what is a program, what, you know, what, is, what is an algorithm, and, uh, and, and it also talks about a low-level machine so you can have some, some kind of an idea what's going on. And it has basic concepts of input and output and uh, subroutines, induction, induction, right? So mathematical preliminary. So, so the thing that makes my book different from uh, a lot of others is that all that I try to not only present the algorithm, but I try to analyze them, and which means to quantitatively, I say not only does it work, but it works this fast. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so I need math for that. And then there's uh, the standard way to structure data inside and represent mm -hmm. information in the computer. So that's all volume one. Uh, vo volume two talks, it's called semi-numerical algorithms. And here we're, here we're, we're, we're writing programs, but we're also de dealing with numbers. Algorithms deal with, with, with any kinds of objects, but, but specific when there's objects are numbers, well, then, then we have certain, special paradigms that that apply to things that have involved numbers and so there's 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 a, there's arithmetic on numbers and and there's matrices full of numbers there's random numbers and there's power series full of numbers there's different um, algebraic concepts that have numbers in structured ways and arithmetic in the way a computer would think about arithmetic uh, so floating point floating point arithmetic high precision arithmetic not only addition, subtraction, multiplication, but also comparison of numbers. So then, then volume three talks about. I like that one. Sort and search. Sorting and search. I love yeah. sorting. Right. So, so here, you know, we're not dealing necessarily with numbers because you so, you sort letters and other objects, and searching we're doing all the time with Google nowadays. But I mean, then you, we have to find stuff. Uh, so, again, algorithms that that underlie. Uh, all kinds of applications. I, you know, n none of these volumes is about a particular application, but the applications are examples of of why people want to know about sorting, why people want to know about random numbers. 
So then volume four goes into combinatorial algorithm. This is where we have uh, zillions of things to deal with, and we and uh, here we keep finding uh, cases where one good idea can can make something go more than a million times faster, mm-hmm. and and uh, and we're dealing with problems that are probably never going to be solved efficiently but that doesn't mean we give up on them uh, and 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 we have this chance to have good ideas and and go much much faster on them so so that's combinatorial algorithms and those are the ones that are yeah, i mean you say sorting is most fun for you well it's, well, it's, it's, it's satisfiability too but too. combinatorial algorithms are the ones that i always that i always uh, enjoyed the most because that's when my Skillet programming had the most payoff. You know, the, the different, the difference between an obvious algorithm that you think up first thing and and a you know and a, and a good and a an interesting subtle algorithm that not so obvious but but uh, runs circles around the other one. That's uh, that, that's where computer science really comes comes in, and and a lot of these uh, combinatorial methods uh, were found. First, in applications to artificial intelligence or cryptography, and um, in my case, uh, I I just liked them, and it was associated more, more with puzzles. Uh, do you like them most in the domain of graphs and graph theory? Graphs are great because they're 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 they're, they're terrific models of so many d- things in the real world, right. and 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 you th- you throw in numbers on a graph, you got a network, and so there you there you have. Many more things. So, but combinatorial, in general, is any uh, arrangement of objects that uh, that has some kind of a higher structure, non non random structure, and okay, is it possible to uh, to put something together satisfying all these conditions? Like I I mentioned, arrows a minute ago. You know, is there a way to, to to, to put these numbers on a bunch of boxes that that are pointing to each other is that going to be possible at all? So that's and volume four. That's volume four. What does the future hold? Volume four A was part one, and yes. and uh, what happened was in 1962 when I started writing down a table of contents, it wasn't going to be a book about computer programming in general. It was going to be a book about how to write compilers, mm. and I was asked to write. A, a book explaining how to how to write a compiler, and uh, at that time, th- there were only a few dozen people in the world who had written compilers, and I happened to be one of them. So, and I also had some experience writing for like the the campus newspaper and things like that. So, so I thought, okay, great. Uh, I'm the only person I know who. Who's written a compiler but hasn't invented any new techniques for writing compilers? And and all the other people I knew had uh, super ideas, but I couldn't see that they would be able to write a, a book that wouldn't that would describe anybody else's ideas mm-hmm. but their own. So I could be the I could be the journalist and I could explain what all these cool ideas about compiler writing were. And uh, and and then I I started putting down. Well, yeah, let me. You need. Have a chapter about data structures. You need to have some introductory material. You, I want to talk about searching because a compiler writer has to has to uh, look up uh, uh, the, the variables in a symbol table and find out uh, you know which which uh, 
when when you when you write the name of a variable in one place, it's supposed to be the same as the one you put somewhere else. So, right. so you need all these basic techniques, and I and I uh, you know kind of know some arithmetic and stuff. So I so I threw in these chapters, and I threw in a chapter on combinatorics because uh, th that was what I really enjoyed pro programming the most. But there weren't many algorithms in, known about combinatorial methods in 1962. Uh, so that was a kind of a short chapter, but it was sort of thrown in just for fun. And chapter 12 was going to be actual compilers, applying all the stuff in chapters 1 to 11 uh, to make compilers. Well, okay. So that was my table of contents from 1962. And during the 70s, the whole field of combinatorics went, went through a huge explosion. People talk about a combinatorial explosion, and they usually mean by that <laughs> that uh, the number of cases goes up, uh, you know, you change n, n plus one, and all of a sudden you, your problem has has gotten more than ten times harder. But there was a, an explosion of ideas about combinatorics in the seventies to, to the point that, but it, it like take nineteen seventy five. I, I I bet you uh, more than half of all the journals of computer science were about combinatorial methods. And what so, kind of problems were occupying people's minds? What kind of problems in combinatorics? Was it satisfiability, graph theory? Yeah, graph theory was, was quite dominant. I mean, but uh, uh, all of the NP-hard problems uh, that you have, like you know, Hamiltonian path or- Travel salesman. Go, go, going beyond, yeah, yeah, going beyond graphs, you, you had operation research uh, whenever there was a small class of problems that had efficient solutions, and they were usually associated with matroid theory or special mathematical construction. But once we went uh, to things that involved three things at a time instead of instead of two, all of a sudden th things got harder. So we had satisfiability problems where if, if you have if you have clauses, every clause has two logical elements in it, then we can satisfy it in linear time. We can test for satisfiability in linear time, but if, if you allow yourself three variables in a clause, uh, then uh, uh, nobody knows how to do it. So these articles were about trying to find better better ways to, uh, to solve cryptography problems and graph theory problems. Where the we have lots of data, but we didn't know how to find the, the best subsets of the data, like with, with sorting uh, we we could get the answer. It didn't take long. So how did it continue to change from the seventies to today? Yeah. So now there may be half a dozen conferences whose topic is combinatorics, a different kind. But uh, fortunately, I don't have to rewrite my book every month. You know, like I had to in in the seventies. But still, there's huge amount of work being done, on, and people getting better ideas on these problems that don't seem to have really efficient solutions, but we still get do a lot more with them. And so this book that I'm finishing now is, I've got a, a, a whole bunch of brand new methods that uh, as far as I know, there's no other, there's no other book that covers, <laughs> that covers this particular approach. And, and uh, so I'm trying to do my best of uh, exploring the tip of the iceberg, uh, and 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 I, I try out lots of things and and keep keep rewriting, uh, finding as I find better better method. So, what's your writing process like? What's your thinking and writing process like every day? So, um, 
What's your routine even? My, I, yeah, I, I guess it's actually uh, the best question because I, I, I spend seven days a week uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're doing the, it. Uh, you're the most prepared uh, to answer it. Yeah, uh, yeah but uh, okay. So uh, uh, the chair I'm sitting in is where I do. <laughs> it's where the magic happens. <laughs> well, I, I, reading and writing. The chair is usually sitting over there where I have other book, or some reference books. But, but uh, I, I found this chair. Uh, which was designed by a Swedish guy anyway. It turns out this is the only chair I can really sit in for hours and hours and not know that I'm in a chair. But then I have the stand-up desk right next next to us, and, and so after I write something with pencil and eraser, I get up and I type it and revise and rewrite. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, I'm standing up. The kernel of the idea is first put on paper. Yeah. That's where... Right. And I, I'll write uh, maybe five programs a week, uh, uh, of course, literate programming. And uh, the, these are, before I describe something in my book, I always program it to see how it's working, and I, and I try it a lot. So, for example, I learned uh, at the end of January, I, I learned of a, of a breakthrough by four Japanese people who had extended one of the one of my methods in a, in a new direction, and so I I spent the next five days writing a program to implement what they did, and then I you know the, but they had only generalized part of what I had done, so then I had to see if I could generalize more parts of it, and then I and I had to take their approach, and I had to I had to try it out on a couple of dozen of the other uh, problems I had already worked out with the, with my old methods. And so that took another couple of weeks, and then I, you know, then I then I started to see the light, and I and uh, and I started writing the the final draft, and uh, and then I would uh, you know type it up. Involved some new mathematical questions, and so I wrote to my friends and who who might be good at solving those pr problems, and and uh, they solved some of them, and so I put that in as exercises and. And so a month later, I had absorbed one new idea that I that I learned, and uh, you know I'm glad I heard about it in time. Otherwise, my I would have put my book out before I'd heard about the idea. On the other hand, this book was supposed to come in at 300 pages, and I'm up to 350 now. That added 10 pages to the book. But if I learn about another one, uh, I, my publisher is going to shoot me. <laughs> well. So in that process, in that one month process, are some days harder than others? Are some days harder than others? Well, th yeah. My work is fun, but I also work hard, and every big job has parts that are a lot more fun than others. And so many days I'll say, why do I have to have such high standards? Why, why couldn't I just be sloppy and not try this out and, and you know just, just report the answer? But I, but I know that... Um, uh, people are counting me to do this, and so okay, so okay, Don, I'll grit my teeth and do it, and 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 then the joy comes out when I see that actually, you know, I'm getting good results, and 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 I get, and I even more when I see that somebody has actually read and understood what I wrote and uh, told me how to make it even better. I did want to mention uh, something about the uh, about the method. So I got this. Tablet here, where where, wow. where I do the first, you know, the first writing uh, of of concepts. Okay, so 
So, um, and what language it, is a, that it, in? <laughs> right. So here, you can take a look at it. But you know, here, random say, explain how to draw such skewed pixel diagrams. Okay. So, I got this paper mm-hmm. about forty years ago when I was visiting my sister in Canada, and they, they make tablets of paper with this, with this nice large size and just the and right a very uh, small space between lines. Small Do you spaces, mind if I yeah, yeah, take a look. maybe uh, also just show it. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You know, I've got these manuscripts going back to the sixties, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and 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 those are when getting my ideas on paper. Okay, but I'm a good typist. In fact, I went to typing school when I was uh, when I was in high school, and so I can type faster than I think. So then, when I do the the editing and you know, stand up and type, then I. Then I revise this, and, and it comes out a lot different than what, for, you know, for, for style and rhythm and things like that, come out at the at the typing stage. And you type in tech. And I type in tech. And know. can you can you think in tech? No. So to a certain extent, I have I have only a small number of of idioms that I use. Like you know, I'm beginning with theorem. I do something for displayed equation. I do something and and so on. But I, but I I have to see it. And in the way that it's on paper it's, it, here, yeah, right. So, for and, example, Turing wrote what the other direction. You don't um, write uh, macros. Uh, you don't think in macros. Not particularly, but when I need a macro, I'll uh, I'll go ahead and and, and, and do it. But but the, but the thing is that I also write to fit. I mean, I'll I'll change something if I can if I can save a line. I'll you know it's like haiku. I'll figure out a way to rewrite the sentence so that uh, it'll look better on the page. Mm-hmm. And uh, I shouldn't be wasting my time on that, but uh, but I can't resist because I know uh, it's, it's only another 3% of the time or something like that. And it could also be argued that that is what life is about. Ah, yes. In fact, that's true. Uh, uh, <laughs> like like I, I work in the garden one day a week, and that's that's kind of a description of my life is getting rid of weeds you know <laughs> removing bugs from programs and so you know yeah. a lot of writers talk about you know basically suffering the writing process as yeah. having you know it's extremely difficult and i think of programming especially the or technical writing that you're doing can be like that do you find yourself methodologically how do you every day sit down to do the work is it a challenge? You you kind of say it's you know oh yeah it's fun, <laughs> but it'd be interesting to hear if yeah, if so, there are non-fun parts that you really struggle with. Yeah, so the the fun comes when when I'm able to put together ideas of two diff, two people who didn't know about each other, and and yeah. and so I, I might be the first person that saw both of their. Ideas and and so then you know, you know then then I get to make the synthesis and that gives me a chance to to be creative, but the drudge work is where I I've got to chase everything down to its root. This leads me in, into really interesting stuff. I mean, I I learn about Sanskrit and I yeah. and and you know I try to give credit to all the authors and so I write so I write to people who who, who know the the people authors if they're dead or I I communicate this way I and uh, I got to get the math right and I got to tack all my programs try to find holes in them 
And I rewrite the programs over after I get a better idea. Is there ever dead ends? Dead ends? Oh, yeah. I, I throw stuff out, yeah. One of the things that I, I spent a lot of time preparing, a major example based on the game of baseball. And I know a lot of people who, for whom baseball is the most important thing in the world. You know, it, yes. but it's, but I also know a lot of people for whom cricket is the most important in the world, or or or, or soccer or something. You soccer, know, or, yeah. uh, and and I realized that if if I had a big example, I mean, it was going to have a fold out illustration and everything. And I was saying, well, what what am I really teaching about algorithms here? Where I had this this this, this baseball example, and if I was a person who who know who knew only cricket, wouldn't they? What would they think about this? And, and so, so I ripped the whole thing out. But I, you know, I had I, I had a something that would have really appealed to people who grew up with baseball as 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 a major theme in their life, which is a lot of people, but but just yeah, so, but still so, a minority, small minority. I took out bowling too, uh, <laughs> even a smaller minority. <laughs> What's the art in uh, the art of programming? Why, why is there of the few words in the title? Why is yeah. art one of them? Yeah, well, that's that's what I wrote my Turing lecture about, and uh, and so when people talk about art, it really, I mean, it, what the word means is something that's not in nature. So, so when you have artificial intelligence. The, the art comes from the same root, saying that this is something that was created by by human beings, and then it's gotten a, a further meaning, uh, often of fine art, which has this beauty to the to the mix. And says, you know, we have things that are artistically done, and and this means uh, not only done by humans, but also done in a way that's elegant and uh, brings joy and. And has has uh, um, I, I guess that Tolstoy versus Dostoevsky uh, uh, <laughs> right. going back. Um, but anyway, it it it's that part that that says that it's done well as well as not only uh, different from nature. In general, then um, uh, art uh, is what human beings are specifically good at. And when they say artificial intelligence, well, they're trying to mimic human beings. But there's an element of fine art and beauty. You are one. That's what I. That's what I try to also say that you can write a pro a program and make a work of art. Mm -hmm. So now, in terms of surprising, you know, what ideas in in writing? From sort and search to the combinatorial algorithms, what ideas have you come across that um, were particularly surprising to you? Okay. That that right. changed the way you see it, a space of yeah. problems. Okay. I get a surprise every time I have a bug in my program, obviously. But they, <laughs> but, but that isn't really what you're at. You, 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 more you're transformational the, yeah. than, right. less so, than surprising. So for example, in volume four A, I was especially surprised when I learned about data structure called BD, BDD, Boolean Decision Diagram, uh, because I sort of had the feeling that uh, as an old timer, uh, and you know, I'd been programming since the, or since the 50s, and uh, 
BDDs weren't invented till 1986. And here comes a brand new idea that revolutionizes the way to represent a Boolean function. And Boolean functions are so basic to all kinds of things in, I mean, logic is, <laughs> underlies it, everything we can describe, all of what we know in terms of logic somehow, and, 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 and uh, it, propositional logic, uh, I thought uh, that was cut and dried, and everything was known. But but uh, but here but here comes uh, 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 Randy Bryant and uh, and discovers that BDDs are are incredibly powerful. Then then the, uh, so so I uh, that mean, means I have a whole whole new section hmm. to the book that I never would have thought of until 1986, not until 1990s when I when when people started to uh, uh, to use it for for you know billion dollar of applications, uh, and and it was it was the standard way to design computers for a long time until and, and until SAT solvers came along when, in the year 2000. So, so that's another great big surprise. So uh, a lot of these things have have totally changed the structure of my book, and the the middle third of volume four B is is about SAT solvers, and that's three hundred plus pages, which is uh, uh, which is all about material, mostly about material that was discovered in this century, mm -hmm. um, and I had to uh, start from scratch and you know, meet all the people in the field and write. I have 15 different set solvers that I wrote while preparing that. Seven of them are described in the book. Um, others were from my own experience. So newly invented data structures or ways to represent? A whole new class of algorithm. A whole new class of algorithm. Yeah. And the interesting thing about the BDDs was that uh, the theoreticians started looking at it and, and, and started to describe all the things you couldn't do with BDDs. And so they were getting a bad, they were getting a bad name, uh, uh, because you know, okay, they were, they they were useful, but they didn't solve every every problem. You know, I'm I'm sure that the theoreticians are, in the next ten years, are going to show why machine learning doesn't solve okay. everything. But I, you know, not only worried about the worst case, I get a huge delight when I can actually solve. A, a problem that I couldn't solve before, yeah. even though I can't solve the problem that's that it suggests as a further problem. I, uh, I I I know that I'm way better than I was before, and so I found out that BDDs could do all kinds of miraculous things. Uh, and so uh, uh, I uh, had had to spend quite a few years uh, uh, learning uh, about the uh, that territory. <clears throat> So in general, what brings you more pleasure? Uh, it, proving or showing a worst case analysis of an algorithm or showing a good average case or just showing a good case that you know something good pragmatically can be done with this algorithm? Yeah, I like a good case that that is maybe only a million times faster than I was able to do before, but uh, and not worry about the fact that uh, uh, that it's still that it's still going to take too long if I double the size of the problem. <clears throat> so that said, you popularized the asymptotic notation for describing running time. Obviously, in the analysis of algorithms, worst case is such a such an important part. Do you see 
any aspects of uh, that kind of analysis is lacking uh, so, and notation too. Well, the, the main pur purpose, we have notations that that help us uh, for the problems we want to solve. And so that right. they, match our, they, they match our intuitions. And uh, people who worked in number theory had used uh, asymptotic notation in, what, in, a, in a certain way, but it was only known to a small group of people. And, and I realized that, in fact, it was very useful to be able to have a notation for something that we don't know exactly what it is, but we only know partial about it and so on. So, uh, for example, instead of big O notation, let's just mm -hmm. let's just take a, a much simpler notation where I'd say zero or one, um, or, or or zero one or two, and suppose that, suppose that that uh, uh, when I had been in high school, we would be allowed to put in the middle of our formula x plus zero one or two mm -hmm. <laughs> equals uh, y. Okay, and and, and then, then we we would learn how to multiply two such expressions together. And and you know I, I deal with them. Uh, well, the same thing. Big O notation says uh, here's something that's. Uh, I, I'm not sure what it is, but I know it's not too big. Uh, I know it's not bigger than some constant times n squared or something like that. Right. And so so I write big O of n squared. And now I I learn how to add big O of n squared to big O of n cubed, and I know how to add big O of n squared to. Uh, plus one and square that and how to take logarithms and exponentials will have big O's in the middle of them. And that turned out to be uh, hugely valuable in, in all of the work that I was trying to do as I'm trying to figure out how good an algorithm is. So have there been algorithms in your journey that perform very differently in practice than they do in theory? Well, the worst case of a combinatorial algorithm is almost always uh, horrible. Uh, but 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 we have sat solvers that are solving. Where one of the one of the last exercises in that part of my book was to f figure out a a problem that has a hundred variables that's that's difficult for a sat solver. Hmm. But uh, but you would think that a, a problem with a hundred billion variables has uh, requires you to do two to the one hundredth. Uh, 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 operations because that's the number of possibilities when you have two hundred boolean variables and two to the one hundredth. Two, two to the one hundredth is way bigger than than we can handle. Ten to the seventeenth is a lot. You've mentioned over the past few years that you believe p may be equal to n p, but that it's not really. Uh, you know, if somebody does prove that p equals n p, it will not directly lead to an actual algorithm to solve difficult problems. Uh, can you explain your intuition here? Has it been changed? And in general, on the difference yeah. between easy and difficult problems of P and NP and so on. Yeah, so, so the, the popular idea is if an algorithm exists, then somebody will find it. Um, and it's just a matter of of, uh, of writing it down. One, 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 uh, but many more algorithms exist than anybody can understand or, or ever make use or of. Or discover, yeah. Uh, because they're just way beyond human comprehension. The, the, the total number of algorithms is, 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 is more than mind-boggling. Mm -hmm. um, so, so we have situations now where we know that algorithms exist, but we don't know, we don't have the foggiest idea what the algorithms are. There, is, there are simple exa examples Based on on game playing, where you have 
where you say, well, there must be an algorithm that exists to win in the game of hex because uh, for the first player to win in the game of hex because hex is always either an al a win for the first player or the second player. Well, what's the game of hex? There's a game of hex which is which based on putting pebbles onto a hexagonal board, and and the white player tries to get a, a white path from left to right, and the black player tries to get a black path from bottom to top. And how does capture occur? Just so I and and there's that. no capture. You just put pebbles down one at a time. But there's no draws because if, if, after all the white and black are played, there's either going to be a white path across from each to west or a black path uh, from from bottom to top. So there's always, you know, it's the perfect information game, and people people play take turns like like uh, tic tac toe, um, and uh, and the hex board can be different sizes. But we there's no possibility of a draw, and players move one at a time. And so it's got to be either a first player win or a second player win. Mathematically, uh, you follow out all the trees, and uh, and either there's always a win for the first player, second player. Okay, and it's finite. The game is finite. So there's an algorithm that will decide. You can show it has to be one or the other because the second player could mimic the first player with kind of a pairing strategy. Ah. Um, and so you can show that. Uh, 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 it has to be one. It has to be one way or the other. But we don't know any algorithm anyway. We, we, we don't know that. In other words, there are there are cases where you can prove the existence of uh, of, uh, of a solution, but we but nobody knows any way how to find it. But more like the algorithm question. Uh, there's a there's a very powerful theorem in graph theory by Robinson and Seymour that says that every class of graphs that is closed under taking minors has a has a polynomial time algorithm to determine whether it's in this class or not. Now, a class of graphs, for example, planar graphs, these are graphs that you can draw in a plane without crossing lines. Mm -hmm. And and a planar graph, is taking minors means that you can shrink an edge in, into a point or you can delete an edge. Mm -hmm. All right? And so you start with a planar graph and sh shrink any edge to a point is still planar. Mm -hmm. Delete an edge is still planar. Uh, okay. Now, uh, but th there are millions of different uh, ways to describe a family of graph that still is remains the same under taking minor. Hmm. And Ro Robertson and Seymour proved that any such family of graphs, there's a finite number of minimum graphs that are obstructions. So, so that if if it's not in the family, then then it has to contain. As, uh, th then there has to be a way to shrink it down and until you get one of these bad minimum graphs hmm. that's not in the family. For in the, pla the case of a planar graph, the minimum graph is a is a five pointed star with everything pointing to another, and the minimum graph consisting of trying to connect three utilities to three houses without crossing lines. Mm. And so there are two there are two bad graphs that are not planar, and every every non planar graph contains one of these two bad graphs by by shrinking and, and, and removing edges. Sorry, can, can you say it again? So uh, the, uh, he proved that there's a finite number of these bad graphs. There's always a finite number. So somebody says, here's a family. Of, That's hard to believe. <laughs> it, it, 
and they it's proved in this, this sequence of twenty papers. I mean, and they're, they're, it, it's deep work, but, but it you know it, it's uh, because that's for any worth, arbitrary class. So it's for any, any class. arbitrary class that's closed under taking minors. That's closed under. Maybe I'm not understanding if, because if, it if seems the, like a lot of them are closed under if, taking if, minors. Almost all the important classes of graphs are. There are tons of of such graphs, but also hundreds of them that arise in applications. Right. I have a book over here called Classes of Graphs, and it and and it it's it, it's amazing how many different uh, classes of graphs that people have looked at. So and, why do you bring up this theorem the, or this proof? So now there are lots of algorithms that that are known for special classes of graphs. For example, if I have a certain if I have a chordal graph, then I can color it efficiently. Mm -hmm. um, if if I have some kinds of graphs, it'll make a great network. Various things. So 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 like you'd like to test it. Uh, somebody gives you a graph. Says, oh, is it in this family of graphs? If, if so, then I have, then I can I can go to the library and find right. an algorithm that's going to solve my problem on that graph. Um, okay, so 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 we we have the, we want to have a graph that says uh, an algorithm that says <laughs> you you give me a graph, I'll tell you whether it's in whether it's in this uh, family or not. Okay, and so. All I have to do is test whether or not that does this given graph have a minor that's one of the bad ones. Mm -hmm. a, a minor is is everything you can get by shrinking and removing edge. And given any minor, there's a polynomial time algorithm saying I can tell whether this is a minor of of, of, of you. And there's a finite number of bad cases, so I just try. You know, does it have this bad case? Polynomial time, I got the answer. Does it have this bad case? Polynomial time, I got the answer. A bit, a total polynomial time, and so I've solved the problem. However, all we know is that the number of minors is finite. We don't know what we we might only know one or two of those minors, but we don't know that if we've got a, if if we've got twenty of them, we don't know there might be twenty one, twenty five. There's just some. All we all we know is that is that it's finite. So here we have a polynomial time algorithm that we don't know. Mm -hmm. That's a really great example of what you worry about or why you think P equals NP won't be useful. But still, why do you hold the intuition that P equals NP? Uh, because it, you have to rule out so many possible algorithms as, 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 as being not working. Uh, uh, there, you know, you can, you can take the graph and you can represent it as a... Uh, in terms of certain prime numbers, and then you can multiply those together, and then you can then you can take the bitwise and and and, and you know and, and uh, construct some certain constant in polynomial time, and then that's you know perfectly valid algorithm. And there are so many algorithms of that kind. A lot of times we see random. Uh, uh, you, you take data and and it. And we get coincidences that 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 some fairly random looking number actually is useful because uh, because uh, it, uh, it it happens to it happens to solve it happens to solve a problem just because uh, you know there's there's so many hairs on your head uh, that, uh, but but it, uh, it it seems like 
uh, unlikely that two people are going to have the same number of hairs on their head. Uh, uh, how, uh, but but th th they're obvious. But you can count how many people there are and and how many hairs on their head. So, so there must be people walking around in the country that have the same number of hairs on their head. Well, it, that's a kind of a coincidence that you you might say also. You know this this particular combination of operations uh, just happens to prove that a graph is has a Hamiltonian path. I mean, uh, I, I see lots of cases where unexpected things uh, happen when you have enough enough possibilities. <laughs> so because the space of possibilities is so huge, your intuition just the, says the, it's They something. have to rule them all out. Yeah. And so th that's the reason for my intuition. It's, it by no means a proof. I mean, some right. people say, uh, you know, well, P, P can't equal NP because you've had all these smart people uh, uh, it, you know, the smartest d designers of algorithms have been racking their brains for years and years and and there's million dollar prizes out there, and you know none of them, n n nobody uh, ha has thought of uh, uh, the algorithm. So it must, m there must be no such algorithm. Right. On the other hand, I can I can use exactly the same logic, and I can say, well, p must be equal to np because there's so many smart people out here have been trying to prove it unequal to np, and they've all failed. Uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> this kind of reminds me of the uh, discussion about the search for aliens. Uh, yeah. We've been trying to look for them, and we haven't found them yet. Therefore, they don't exist. Yeah. Uh, but you can show that there's so many planets out there that they very possibly could exist. Yeah. And uh, right. And uh, then there's also the possibility that that they exist, but they uh, they all discovered machine learning or something, and, <laughs> and 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 then blew each other up. Well, on that small, quick tangent, let me ask: Do you think there's intelligent life out there in the universe? I have no idea. It, do you hope so? Do you think about it? It, I, I don't. I, I don't spend my time thinking about things that I, that I could never know, really. Mm. And yet, you do enjoy the fact that there's many things you don't know. You do enjoy the mystery of things. I, I enjoy the fact that there are, that I have limits, yeah, but I don't, but but I don't take time to 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 answer unsolvable questions. Right? Got it. Well, because you've taken on some tough questions that may seem unsolvable. You have taken on some tough questions that may seem unsolvable. But they're and, and in the space. It gives me a thrill when I can get further than I ever thought I could. Right. Yeah. But, but I don't. But much like with religion, uh, these. I, I'm glad that there that that there's no proof that God exists <laughs> or not. I mean, this. I think it would spoil the mystery. It it, it would be it would be too dull. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, to quickly talk about the other art of artificial intelligence, what is the view? What's your view? You know, artificial intelligence community has developed as part of computer science and in parallel with computer science since the 60s. Uh, what's your view of the AI community uh, from the 60s um, to now? So all the way through, it was the, the people who were inspired by trying to mimic intelligence or, or to do things that, that were somehow the greatest uh, achievements of intelligence that had been inspiration to people who have pushed the envelope of computer science uh, maybe more than any other group of people. Uh, so it's, all the way through, it's been a great source of, of uh, good problems to, to uh, sink teeth into. And and getting getting uh, 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 partial answers and then more and more 
successful answers over the years. So th th this has this has been the inspiration for lots of the great discoveries of computer science. Are you yourself captivated by the possibility of creating of algorithms having um, echoes of intelligence in them? Not as much as as most of the people in the field, I guess I would right. say, but but uh, that's not to say that they're wrong or that it's just you, you asked about my own personal preferences and but, uh, but the but the thing that I that I uh, uh, worry about is when people start believing that they've actually succeeded uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, 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 because the seems to me this huge gap between really understanding something and being able to pretend to understand something and give the give the illusion of understanding something do you think it's possible to create without understanding yeah so to uh oh, i i do that all the time too i mean <laughs> i right. mean that's why i use random numbers i hmm. i i yeah but i but but there's there's still this great gap. I, I I don't assert that it's impossible, but I but I I don't see anything coming any closer to really uh, the uh, the kind of stuff that I would consider intelligence. So you've mentioned something that I, <clears throat> on that line of thinking, which I I very much agree with. So the art of computer programming, as the book is focused on single processor algorithms. Uh -huh. And for the most part, uh, you, you mentioned- That's only because I set the table of contents in 1962, you have to remember. <laughs> for sure, there's no- uh, I'm glad I didn't wait until 1965 or something. <laughs> uh, one book, uh, maybe we'll touch on the Bible, but w w one book can't always cover the entirety of everything. So uh, I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, um, I'm glad the uh, the table of contents for uh, the the art of computer programming is what it is. But you did mention that uh, that you thought that an understanding of the way ant colonies are able to perform incredibly organized tasks might well be the key to understanding human cognition. So these fundamentally yeah, yeah. distributed systems. So what do you right. think is the difference between the way uh, Don Knuth would sort a list and an ant colony would sort a list or well, yeah. perform an algorithm? Sorting a list isn't the same as cognition though, uh, but but I know what you're getting at is, uh, so to the, well, the advantage of ant colony, at least we can see what they're doing, we 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 know which ant has talked to which other ant, and 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 uh, and it's much harder uh, with with the with brains to 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 know how, to what extent uh, neurons are, are passing signal. So I, I'm just saying that ant colony might be a you know if they have the secret of co of cognition, think of an ant colony as a cognitive single being rather than as a as a colony of lots of different ants. I mean, just like the, the cells of our brain are and 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 the microbiome and all that is, a, is interacting uh, uh, entities but uh, but somehow the uh, I consider myself to be a single person well you know an ant colony uh, you can say might be cognitive cognitive somehow and, and yeah I mean you know I okay uh, uh, I, I, I I smash a certain ant and 
organism saying, hmm, that stung, what was that? You know, right. You know. But if we're going to crack the, the, the secret of cognition, it might be that we could do so by, by, by psyching out how ants do it because we have a better chance to measure they're communicating by pheromones and by touching each other and uh, sight, but but not by much more subtle phenomenon like electric currents going through. But even a simpler version of that, what are your thoughts of maybe uh, Conway's Game of Life? Okay, so Conway's Game of Life is is able to simulate any any computable process. And, and any deterministic process is... Uh, I like how you went there. I mean, that's not its most powerful thing, I would say. I mean, uh, but, it can simulate it, but the the magic is that the individual units are distributed Yes. And extremely simple. Yes, we can we, we understand exactly what the primitives are. The primitives, just like with the ant but, colony, even simpler but, though. But if we, but still, it doesn't say that I understand, uh, I understand life. I, I, I mean, I understand, it gives me a better insight into what does it mean to, uh, to have a deterministic universe. Uh, uh, to, uh, to, uh, what does it mean to, um, uh, to, uh, to have uh, free choice, for example. Uh, so do you think uh, God plays dice? Yes. I don't see any reason why God should be for, for, forbidden from using the most efficient ways to 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 uh, 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 to. Um, I mean, we, we we know that dice are extremely important in in efficient algorithms. There are things that that couldn't be done well without randomness, and so I don't see any reason why why God should be, be prohibited from, from when the uh, when the algorithm requires it. Uh, yeah. I don't you, you don't see why the yeah the, the physics should constrain it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So in two thousand one, you gave a series of lectures at MIT about religion and science. No, that was 1999. But you published, uh, sorry. The book, the book came out in 2001. In 2000. So in 1999, you spent a little bit of time in Boston enough to give uh, those lectures. Yeah. And uh, I read in the 2001 version, uh, most of it. It's quite fascinating to read. I recommend people, uh, it's a transcription of your lectures. So... What did you learn about how ideas get started and grow from studying the history of the Bible? So you've rigorously stu studied a very particular part of the Bible. Uh, what did you learn from this process about the way us human beings as a society uh, develop well, and grow ideas, share ideas, and yeah, are defined by those ideas? Well, I, it's hard to summarize that. Um, I wouldn't say that I that I learned a great deal of, of really definite things like where, I, where I could make conclusions, but I learned more about what I don't know. If you have a complex subject which is really beyond human understanding, uh, uh, so, so we give up on saying, I'm ever going to get to the end of the road and I'm ever going to understand it, but you say, but, but maybe it might be good for me to, uh, uh, t to get closer and closer and learn more about, more and more about something. And so, you know, how can I do that uh, uh, efficiently? And the answer uh, is, well, use randomness. Um, and so, tr tr so try a random subset of the uh, that that is within my grasp, and 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 study that in detail instead of just uh, studying parts that somebody tells me to study. 
or instead of studying nothing because it's too hard. Um, uh, so I, I, I decided uh, uh, for, for my own amusement at one, once that I would, I would take a subset of the, of the uh, verses of the Bible and I would um, try to find out what the best thinkers have said about the, the, that small subset. And I had, I had about, let's say, six, 60 verses out of, out of 3,000. I think it's one out of 500 or something like this. And so then I went to the libraries, which, which are well-indexed. Uh, uh, you you, you, I, I spent, uh, for example, at, uh, at Boston Public Library, I, I would go once a week for, for a year. And I went to, I went to half dozen times to Andover Harvard Library to you know, to look at this you know, books that weren't in the Boston public, uh, where they where scholars had looked and you can go in the and you can go down the shelves and you and, and you can pretty you can look in the index and say oh is there is this verse mentioned anywhere in this book if so look at page one hundred and five so so mm -hmm. in other words I I could learn not only about the Bible but about the secondary literature about the Bible, the things that scholars have written about it. And so that that gave me a way to uh, 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 to zoom in on parts of the thing so that I could get more more insight. And, and, and so I look at it as, as a way of giving me some, some firm pegs of which I, in which I could hang pieces of information, but not as, as things where I would say, and therefore this is true. In this uh, random approach of sampling the Bible, yeah. what did you learn about the the most uh, you know central the, uh, one of the biggest the, accumulation it, of ideas in our? It seemed to me that the, the that the main thrust was not the, the one that most people think of as saying you know oh, 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 you know don't have sex or something like this, <laughs> um, but that the main thrust was uh, to try to. To, to try to figure out how to live in harmony with God's wishes, mm. I'm assuming that God exists, and I, as I say, I'm glad that I that it, there's no way to prove this because that wouldn't that would I, I would run through the proof once and then I'd forget it, and and it would and and I would never uh, uh, speculate about spiritual things and, and mysteries. Otherwise, and I think my life would be very incomplete. So I'm, uh, so, so I'm, I'm assuming that God exists. But if, uh, but a lot of the, the people say God doesn't exist, but that's still important to them. And so, in a, in a way, in a way that might st still be whether God is there or not. Uh, uh, in some sense, uh, it, it, uh, it God is important to them. It's it's. One of the one of the verses I studied, is, you can interpret it as saying, uh, you know, it's much better to be an atheist that, than not to care at all. Mm. <laughs> so I would say it's yeah, it's similar to the p equals n p discussion. Uh, yeah, you you mentioned a mental exercise that I, I I'd love it if you could partake in yourself, uh, a mental exercise of uh, being God. And so, how would you, if you were God? Doc Newth, how would you present yourself to the people of Earth? You mentioned uh, your love of literature, and there was there's this book that that really uh, I can recommend to you. If I, I think, yeah, the title I think is Blasphemy. It talks about uh, 
God revealing himself through a computer in, in, yeah. in, in, in Los Alamos. And, and uh, it, um, uh, it's the only book that I've ever read where uh, the punchline was really the very last word of the book and it and explained the whole idea of the book. And so I don't want to give that away, but it but it's really very much about this question that you that that you raised. Uh, uh, the, uh, but but suppose God uh, uh, said, "Okay, that my my, pre my previous um, means of communication with the world are not the best for the twenty first century. So what should I do now?" And uh, and and it's conceivable that that it would uh, that that God would choose the way that's described in this book. Another way to look at this exercise is uh, looking at the human mind, looking at the human spirit, the human life in a systematic way. I think it mostly you want to learn humility. You want to realize that once we solve one problem, that doesn't mean that we're that all of a sudden other, mm. other problems are going to drop out. And 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 we have to realize that that uh, uh, that there are there are things beyond our beyond our our ability. Um, I see hubris all around. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, well said. Uh, if you were to run program analysis on your own life, uh, how did you do in terms of correctness, running time, resource well, use, asymptotically speaking, of course? Okay, yeah. Well, I would say that question had not been asked me before. Um, <laughs> and uh, I... I... Uh, I started out uh, with library subroutines and and uh, uh, learning how to be a automaton that was obedient, and I had the great advantage that I d didn't have anybody to blame for my failures. If I started getting not understanding something, I, I I knew that I should stop playing ping pong, and that, that it was my fault that that I was that I wasn't studying hard enough or something, rather than that somebody was discriminating against me in some way. And and uh, I don't know how to avoid this the existence of biases in the world, but I but I, but I know that that's an extra burden that I didn't have to suffer from. Um, and uh, and and then I uh, I f found the uh, uh, f from from parents I learned uh, the idea of uh, of altru of service uh, to, to other people as being more important than than uh, uh, what I get out of stuff myself. I, I know that I need to I need to be. Happy enough, uh, enough in order to be able to be of service. But I, but I, you know, but I, I came to a philosophy uh, finally that that I phrase as point eight is enough. Now, there was a TV show once called Eight Is Enough, which was about a, a, a you know somebody had eight kids. Um, but but uh, I I I say point eight is enough, which means if, if I can have a way of rating happiness, I think it's good design that it, I, I, to have uh, to have an organism that's happy about eighty percent of the time. 
Um, and if, if it was a hundred percent of the time, it would be like every, like everybody's on drugs and, and never, and, 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 and everything collapses and nothing works because everybody's just too happy. Do you think you've achieved that 0.8 optimal uh, well, balance? I, there are times when I, when I'm down and I, you know, and I, 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 I mean, I know that I'm chemically, that I, I know that I, I've actually been programmed to be, uh, uh, to be depressed a certain amount of time mm -hmm. and 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 if if that gets out of kilter and I'm more depressed than usual you know I, sometimes I, I I find myself trying to think now who should I be mad at today there must be a reason why I'm you know but, <laughs> yeah. uh, but I but then I realize you know it's just my it's just my chemistry telling me that I'm supposed to be mad at somebody and so and so, so I trick it up and say oh, okay go to sleep and get better um but but if I'm but if I'm not a hundred percent happy, that doesn't mean that I should find somebody that that's screwing me and 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 try to silence them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I but I, I, I I'm saying you know okay I'm not a hundred percent happy but but I, I'm happy enough to to, to be a you know part of a of a sustainable situation. So so that's uh, kind of the the uh, numerical analysis I do. Uh, I, I <laughs> You've do converged a, towards a, a, the a, optimal, which things. for yeah. human life is a point eight. Yeah. I hope it's okay uh, to talk about, uh, as you talked about previously, in 2006, you were diagnosed with prostate cancer. Has uh -huh. that encounter with mortality changed you in some way or the way you see the world? Well, yeah, it did. The first encounter with mortality was my when my dad died, and I I went through a month when I sort of came to uh, came, you know uh, be comfortable with the fact that I was going to die someday. Uh, and during that month, uh, I don't know, uh, I uh, uh, I I felt okay, but I couldn't sing. And you know, I and I and I couldn't do original research either. I I, I sort of remember after three or four weeks, the, the first time I started having a technical thought that made sense and was maybe slightly creative, uh, I could sort of feel that 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 something was starting to move again. You know, but that was you know, so so I felt very empty for. Uh, until I came to grips with the, I, uh, yes, I learned that this is sort of a standard grief process that people go through. Uh, okay, so then now I'm at a point in my life, even more so than in 2006, where where all of my goals have been fulfilled except for finishing the art of computer programming. Um, I, I, uh, 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 I had one major unfulfilled goal that I, I'd wanted uh, all my life to to write a piece of a, a piece piece of music that, and I, I had an idea for uh, for for a certain kind of music that I thought ought to be written. At least somebody ought to try to do it. And I and I felt that it was a, that uh, uh, it wasn't going to be easy. But I wanted to I, I wanted it to. Proof of concept. I wanted to know if it was going to work or not, and so I spent a lot of time. And finally, I finished that piece, and we had the uh, we had the, the uh, uh, world premiere last year on my 80th birthday, and we had another premiere in Canada, and there's talk of concerts in Europe and various things. So that, but that's done. It's part of the world's music now, and it's either good or bad. But I I did uh, what I was hoping to do. So the only thing that I 
that that I uh, have on my agenda is to is to try to do as well as I can with the art of computer programming until I go to see now. Do you think there's a element of point eight that might apply of what? there? Point eight. Yeah. Well, I, I look at it more that I got actually to 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 one point oh uh, with when when that concert was over with. Um, I mean, I I I, I, I you know I so in two thousand six I was at point eight. Um, so so when when I was diagnosed with prostate cancer, then I said, okay, well maybe this is. You know, I've, I've I've had all kinds of of good luck all my life, and there's no I have nothing to complain about. So I might die now, um, and we'll see what happens. And so, so it's it, quite seriously. I I went and I, I didn't. I, I I had no expectation that I deserved better. Um, I didn't make any plans for the future. I had my my surgery. I came out of the surgery, and uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, sp spent some time learning how to walk again, and so on. Is you know, it's painful for a while. Um, but I got home, and I realized I hadn't really thought about what what to do next. I hadn't I hadn't any expect. You know, I I said, okay, hey, I'm still alive. Okay, now I can write some more books. But it, but I didn't. Come with the attitude that you know, uh, uh, you know, this was this was terribly unfair, and uh, and and uh, I I just said okay, I I I, I was accepting whatever it turned out. Uh, you know, I I I I I'd gotten I gotten more than my share already. So why should I? And I didn't, and I really. When I got home, I re I realized that I had really not thought about the next step, what I would do after I would after I would be able to work again. I had sort of thought of it as if as this might, you know, I was comfortable with with the fact that it was at the end. Um, but but I was hoping that I would still, you know, be able to uh, learn about satisfiability and and. Uh, uh, also, someday even write music. I didn't start. To, I didn't start on, uh, seriously on the music project until Collector. 2012. <clears throat> so I'm going to be in huge trouble if I don't talk to you about this. Uh, in in the 70s, you've created the Tech Typesetting System together with Metafont language for font description and computer modern family of typefaces. That has basically defined the methodology and the aesthetic of. The countless well, research fields, right? Math, physics, uh, uh, well, beyond computer the, science, so on. Okay, well, yeah. first of all, thank you. <laughs> I, yeah. I think I speak for a lot of people in saying that. But a question in terms of beauty. There's a beauty to typography that you've created, and yet beauty is hard to quantify. Right. Um, how does one create beautiful letters and beautiful equations? Uh, um, like what, 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 so, I mean, perhaps there's no words to be describing, uh, yeah, to be describing the process, but. So the great, uh, Harvard mathematician, George D. Berkhoff, uh, wrote a book in the thirties called Aesthetic Measure, where he, where he would 
have pictures of vases and underneath would be a number and this was how beautiful the, the vase was and he had a formula for this and and he actually also wrote wrote about music and so he could he he, he could uh, you know so i thought maybe i would for part of my musical composition i would try to be, uh, program his algorithms and and you know so, so that i would i would write something that had the highest number by his score well it wasn't quite rigorous enough for for a computer to uh, to do but anyway people have tried to to put numerical value on beauty uh, but uh, and and he he did the, probably the most serious attempt and and uh, uh, George Gershwin's teacher also uh, wrote two volumes where he talked about his method of 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 composing music but but you're talking about another kind of beauty and beauty in letters and le letter forms, elegance but, and but, whatever but, that yeah. curvature is right so so uh, uh, and so that's uh, in the eye of the beholder as they say but. Um, into striving for excellence in whatever definition you want to give to beauty, then you try to get as close to that as you can somehow. With the, uh, I guess, I guess I'm trying to ask, and there may not be a good answer. Uh, what loose definitions were you operating under with the community of people that well, you were working on? Oh, the loose definition. I, I wanted, I wanted it to appeal to me, to me. <laughs> I mean, to you personally, yeah, that's a good start. Yeah, right? no, and, and it failed that test when when I got volume two came out with the with the new printing, and I was expecting it to be the happiest day of my life, and and I I felt a, 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 a like a burning like a, how how angry I was that I I opened the book and it it was in the same beige covers and and but but it didn't look right on the page it uh, the, the the, the, the number two was particularly ugly. I couldn't stand it. any page that had a two in his page number, um, and I was expecting that it was. You know, I I spent all this time make, making measurements, and I and I had had, had, had looked at stuff in different different ways, and I I, I had I had uh, great technology, but but it did you know, but I. I but I wasn't done. I had I, I had to retune the whole thing uh, after 1961. Has it ever made you happy? Finally. Oh oh yes. That, uh, uh, or is it a point eight? No, it, it, no, no. And so many books have come out that would never have been written without this. I just it, it just it's just it's just a joy. But I can. But now I. Can, uh, I mean, all these pages that are sitting up there. I I I I, I don't have a. Uh, if I didn't like them, I would change them. <laughs> I, I, that's my no. Nobody else has this ability. They they have to stick with what I gave them. Yeah. So in in terms of the other side of it, in there's the typography. So the look of the of the type and the curves, and the lines. Uh, what about the spacing? What what about the the spacing between spacing, yeah. the white space? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, uh, it uh, seems uh, like you could be a little bit more systematic about the layout or technical. Uh, oh oh yeah, you can always go further. I I. I I, I I didn't I didn't stop at point eight. I stopped I stopped at about point nine eight. <laughs> it seems uh, like you're not following your own rule uh, for happiness, or is or... no no no. I uh, <laughs> there's okay. Of course, there's this what is the Japanese word wabi sabi or something that where where the the most beautiful works of art are those that have flaws because then the 
the person who who perceives them as their own uh, appreciation, and that gives the viewer more satisfaction, or so on. But but uh, I but no no with typography, I wanted it to look as good as I could in in the vast majority of cases, and then when it doesn't, then I. Uh, I say okay, that's two percent more work for the for the author, but but I didn't want to I I didn't want to say that my job was to get to hundred uh, percent with and take all the work away from the author. That's what I meant by that. So, if you were to venture a guess, how much of the nature of reality do you think we humans understand? So you mentioned you appreciate mystery. Yeah. How much of the world about us is shrouded in mystery? Are we, are we? Uh, if you were to put a number on it, uh, yeah. what what percent of it all do we understand? Are uh, we totally? How, how many leading zeros? Any point zero point zero zero zero? I don't know. No, I think it's infinitesimal. How do we think about that, and what do we do about that? Do we continue one step at a time? Yeah, we muddle through. I mean, we we, we, we do our best. We realize that not that nobody's perfect, and we. And we uh, try to keep advancing, but we don't uh, spend time saying uh, we're not there, we're not all the way to the end. Uh, some some mathematicians that that would be in the office next to me when I was in, in the math department, they would never think about anything smaller than countable infinity, and and I never, you know, we intersected that countable infinity because I, I I rarely got up to countable infinity. I was always talking about finite stuff. But, but even even limiting to finite stuff, which is which is um, uh, which which the universe might be, uh, there's no no way to really know what, whether the universe is, is isn't uh, isn't uh, uh, just made out of uh, capital N uh, uh, pro, pro, uh, uh, whatever units you want to call them quarks or whatever, mm -hmm. uh, where where capital N is some finite number. All of the numbers that are comprehensible are still way smaller than most, almost all finite numbers. I I I, I got this one paper uh, called "Supernatural Numbers," where I what what I guess you probably ran into something called Knuth arrow notation. Did you ever mm -hmm. run into that? Where, where anyway? So you take a number. I think it's like I I and I called it Super K. I named it after myself, but it's it's but in arrow notation, it's something like. Ten and then four arrows and a three or something like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, now the arrow notation. If if you have if you have no arrows, that means multiplication. X Y means um, X times X times X times X Y times. If you have one arrow, that means exponentiation. So X one arrow Y means X to the X to the X to the X to the X mm -hmm. uh, uh, Y times. So I found out, by the way, that this this notation was invented by a guy. In 1830, and and uh, and he was he was a a, a uh, uh, one of the English nobility who who spent his time thinking about stuff like this, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and it was exactly the same concept that I that I that I used arrows and he used a slightly different uh, notation. But anyway, this and then this. Ackerman's function is is based on the same kind of ideas, but th Ackerman was 1920s. But anyway, we got this number ten quadruple arrow three. So 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 that that says well we take you know we take ten to the ten to the 
10 to the 10 to the 10 to the 10th. And how many times do we do that? Oh, 10 double arrow two times or something. I mean, how tall is that stack? But 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 then we do that again because that was only 10 triple arrow, quadruple arrow two. We, quadruple arrow three means be a we have a pretty to, large number. It, it gets way beyond comprehension, okay? It, uh, and and uh, and so, uh, but it's so small compared to what finite numbers really are because I'm only using four arrows and you know and a ten and a three. I mean, let's have that. Let's have that many number arrows. I mean, the the boundary between infinite and finite uh, is incomprehensible for us humans. Anyway, infinity is a good is a useful way for us to think about extremely large. Uh, extremely large things, and uh, 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 and 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 we can uh, we we can manipulate it, but but we can never know that the universe is actually anywhere near that. Uh, so uh, it just it, 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 uh, so so I realize how little we know. Um, but but we, but but we 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 found an awful lot of of of, of th things that are too hard for any one person to know even with even in our small universe. Yeah, and we did pretty good. So uh, when you go up to heaven and meet God, and get to ask one question that would get answered, uh, what question would you ask? What kind of browser do you have up here? <laughs> I don't know. No, I, I actually, I, I don't think it's meaningful to ask this question, okay. but, but uh, I, I certainly hope we had good internet. <laughs> okay, on that note, uh, that's, that's, a, that's beautiful, actually. Um, Don, thank you so much. It was a huge honor to talk to you. I really okay, appreciate it. Well, thanks for the gamut of questions. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Donald Knuth. And thank you to our presenting sponsor, Cash App. Download it, use code LEXPODCAST, you'll get $10, and $10 will go to FIRST, a STEM education nonprofit that inspires hundreds of thousands of young minds to learn and to dream of engineering our future. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe on YouTube, give it five stars on Apple Podcasts, support it on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter. And now, let me leave you with some words of wisdom from Donald Knuth. We should continually be striving to transform every art into a science. And in the process, we advance the art. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time. 